Welcome to the Revolution Church Podcast. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming out today. Um, are we all ready to go, Barb? All right, cool. Uh, welcome to Revolution Church. Um, Jay's taking a couple weeks off, but my name is Curtis. I'll be uh, chatting with you guys today. Um, uh, and yeah, I'm just going to jump right into the talk I've given, or I wrote... Um, just so everyone knows, I uh, have taken a long time off of talking formally in a church. Uh, we always have uh, time after the sermon to talk a little bit, and I've contributed to that over the last year. But um, if I feel a little wonky, uh, it's because I'm a little bit rusty. Uh, but yeah, uh, so just wanted to give a little bit of my background real quickly. Um, I grew up in a mainline Protestant church church. Uh, uh, United Methodist specifically. Um, my dad was the pastor of the church that I went to, and I got pretty involved with the church, uh, often spending two or three nights there a week, or uh, days there a week. Um, I even got so involved that I decided to go into missions, and at 14, I went to the Philippines for a month to um, try to uh, spread the word of Christianity to uh, remote villages in uh, in Philip in the Philippines, but um, I actually came to Minneapolis for the first time because of uh, mission work as well. Uh, there was a group that was training people on how to do urban ministry, and so I came up here for a week and uh, learned some techniques on how to talk to people in random cafes about uh, you know leading towards a question about what they think about God and Christianity. And it was definitely a lot less pushy than the stuff I was doing in the Philippines, but it was still in the same vein. Uh, but I think it was one of the few teenagers that was reading apologetics books to try to defend Christianity when I was younger. Um, and uh, I also kind of ran, uh, to some extent, as a teenager, a, a small Christian venue where I bring in Christian bands uh, from around the country and um, and just kind of provided a place for uh, kids in the neighborhood to be able to come hang out and get a little bit of a dose of like, uh, you know, a little bit of teachings as to Christianity in the process. So from that, uh, from that stuff that I did as a teenager and as a young tyke, I actually decided to go to college to learn about Christianity and theology and religion from an academic setting, and I went to Central College in Pella, Iowa. I got a liberal arts degree and a religion major, and throughout that process, I was very much uh, filled with a lot of confusion and doubt, because the Christian church of my youth had a lot of statements about how uh, the stories that I was reading in the Bible were historically accurate to a T and that there was no fault to be found in the Christian texts that I had been reading. And that really flew in the face of the teachings I was learning at this school uh, where I was trying to learn about the actual history of the early church, about how the Bible was put together. And um, I realized that there were a lot of there's a lot of confusion there, and uh, I actually I took about ten 
years off of going to any sort of Christian church uh, after my college experience. And about a year ago, I decided to start coming back here uh, to to church regularly. And it's been a pretty cool time, um, but I've come back thinking things a little bit differently, and I just wanted to get into that a little bit today. Um, so while I was not in church, I was uh, definitely still kind of trying to make sense of the world around me. I'm definitely somebody that wants to figure out, like, uh, holistic concepts as to how things operate, how uh, we should interpret all of the weirdness um, that comes at us when we're trying to experience the world and try to create a story of some sort that makes sense. And I think that uh, during that time off, I was still a little bit um, enamored by certain concepts that I had grown up with. And uh, I wanted to read one of those uh, today. Um, it's from Isaiah uh, 58. So uh, I'm going to start at the beginning and um, and here we go. So this is, uh, so Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He was a guy that was uh, told by God to say some things to the Jewish people at the time. And uh, this is one of the things he said. Um, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to hear my laws. You would almost think that this was a righteous nation that would never abandon its God. They love to make a show of coming to me and asking me to take action on their behalf. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have done much penance, and you don't even notice it. I will tell you why. It's because you are living for yourselves even while you are fasting. You keep right on oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like a blade of grass in the wind. You dress in sackcloth and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, the kind of fasting I want calls you to free those who are wrongly imprisoned and to stop oppressing those who work for you. Treat them fairly and give them what they earn. I want you to share your food with the hungry and to welcome poor wanderers into your homes. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. If you do these things, your salvation will come like the dawn. Uh, So that seems like... A good passage. It's kind of cutting through the thick of it. It somewhat is perhaps arguing that people that are not going to the temple or people that don't go to the church that are trying to help oppressed people are actually more favorable to God than the people that are going but are doing it in a way to simply uh, either trick themselves or to trick God into thinking 
that they're good people. And I think that that was one of the reasons why I decided to stop going to church is because I noticed a lot of this uh, fakeness that was happening. Um, and I really I want to be surrounded by authentic things rather than fake things. And if that wasn't something that could be had in a church setting, I didn't really want much to do with it. And really, I, I got very active in activism. I did a lot of work on uh, cannabis law reform. I did a lot of work trying to make sure that people's Fourth Amendment rights were upheld by having laws that strengthen the Fourth Amendment protections uh, related to surveillance and illegal search, illegal seizure. And, um, but I also noticed another tendency within me uh, recently, and I think that it kind of comes back to the fact that surrounding this text, which I think is uh, showing God in a, a way that I, I don't have much difficulty being queasy about, um, but I noticed uh, there's some texts right next to it that I want to read that present things in a little bit of a different light. So in the very next chapter, in uh, Isaiah 59, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. The, the Lord looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. He was amazed to see no one intervene to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with his mighty power and justice. He put on righteousness as his body armor and placed the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with the robes of vengeance and a godly fury. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes in distant lands. Then at last they will respect and glorify the name of the Lord throughout the world. For he will come like a flood tide driven by the breath of God. And uh, so that's kind of talking about how perhaps we should act good like the previous chapter was talking about because of the fact that God's going to hunt us down and, and hurt us to some extent. So there's um, some, conf I, I guess that's a rough one, but uh, I wanted to go to the next uh, couple of passages here. So this is Isaiah 60, starting in verse 8. And what do I see flying like clouds to Israel, like doves to their nests? They are the ships of Tarshish, reserved to bring the people of Israel home. They will bring their wealth with them, and it will bring great honor to the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he will fight, or sorry, he will fill you with splendor. Foreigners will come in to rebuild your cities. Kings and rulers will send you aid. For though I have destroyed you in my anger, I will have mercy on you through my grace. Your gates will stay open around the clock to receive the wealth of many lands. The kings of the world will be led as captives in a victory procession, 
for the nations that refuse to be your allies will be destroyed. The glory of Lebanon will be yours. The forests of Cyprus, fir and pine, to beautify my sanctuary. My temple will be glorious. So this passage, in my opinion, is articulating how God seems to have select favor for an elect group of people. And obviously that's problematic in our multicultural age that we're in right now. Um, But I feel like there's a secular version of this same mentality, uh, both of the passages I just went through. The first of which is saying that we, from the tribe that I'm a part of, is going to be justified uh, because God's going to come down and smite my enemies. Or maybe it's not God in the secular sense. Maybe it's uh, there's some sort of force in nature that's on my side and is going to come down and and uh, avenge the wrongdoings that have come to me. And then the second passage I read um, talks about how... Uh, God is going to take the people that he has chosen, which I used to think I was part of that in-group, and raise them up so that... uh, Actually, I've missed one sentence here. So, though you were once despised and hated and rebuffed by all, you will be beautiful forever. Uh, Suggesting that there is some sort of time in, in which... Uh, we will no longer have strife or struggle or confusion as to whether uh, we're on the right side or the wrong side. Um, And so I have come, I believe, to diagnose myself uh, over the last year or so with a fear that of, uh, a fear of, emptiness or the fear of some sort of void that there isn't going to be anyone that comes and vanquishes me for my good deeds that there isn't someone that's going to come maybe after i die or maybe even my own life that's going to come and and make everything into a paradise into a new jerusalem where all of this struggling has some context and makes sense because i finally made it in some sort of way. And I think that that fear of emptiness or the fear that there isn't going to be something that comes to my aid uh, is not a well-placed fear. I think that there is some value in at least being willing to contemplate that sort of concept. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament um, really kind of is a shocking book because it consistently throughout it talks about the meaninglessness of life and how the rain falls both on the good and on the wicked and that that doesn't really make a lot of sense in an earthly way. However, uh, even though that book is thought of in those contexts by uh, people that have read it, it definitely still ends with the concept that you need to fear God and obey his commands, for this is the duty of every person, and that God will judge us for everything that we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. 
and I guess that I'm, I've been contemplating a world, and I, I definitely don't have any illusions that I think I'm definitely correct on this, but I've been imagining a world where there is no judge at the end that judges every secret thing, that at least some sort of eternal judge that is going to look over all our deeds after we die. And, um, and I guess I, I've seen a couple of different, uh, well, I've, I've heard it articulated most recently in a movement called the death of God theology movement, which actually gained a lot of prominence in the 1960s. Um, I actually, uh, just ordered my first Playboy because w- within it there's an article about the death of God. So I really am getting it for the article. I ordered it on eBay, um, but it was also on the front cover of Time Magazine. Uh, there was a, a article: "Is God Dead?" Um, it was on. It was in the New York Times. Uh, it was on CBS. There's uh, there was this big awakening in the '60s where people were asking. Uh, is God dead? Is there a way to be a Christian but be an atheist Christian? Uh, and I wanted to read real quickly, and I think this will be my last uh, Bible passage for the day. Um, I wanted to read real quickly the heart of uh, the the foundational couple of verses from this Death of God movement. It's uh, Philippians 2, uh, 1 through five or one through eight um so this is a book uh we believe written by paul although i don't know the uh what the academics say about if it was written by paul or not Uh, but paul was an apostle um trying to get the early church organized he was writing letters this was one of the letters that he wrote to the philippians uh Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they are doing. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Uh, So here we have it. God himself made himself nothing. Uh, There's a concept in postmodern philosophy uh it's the idea that there is a radical self-negation within uh certain movements and and that self-negation is a positive 
And it seems fairly self-contradictory because we think of ourselves as whole, complete uh, persons, and how can one self-negate oneself? How can God self-negate God? Uh, But I guess I wanted to talk about a couple other movements that I believe include this sort of self-negation within itself, Uh, one of which would be the band Crass, which is an English band from the 70s and early 80s. But Crass declared in 1978 that punk is dead in one of their songs. They called out the Sex Pistols. They called out, uh, is it Joni Smith or Patti Smith? They called out um, The Clash. And in essence, they said, if you call yourself a punk and you're doing it not because you're trying to help a revolution in the way that we all relate to one another, then that punk essence is completely dead. However, the band Crass kept playing for six years and kept playing punk music after they declared punk is dead. So I guess I'm wondering myself, is there a way to still believe in God after God is dead? Or is there a way to continue doing church after church is dead? Um, This one might be a little bit of a stretch, but I think that perhaps science itself has self-negation in its own core. The concept behind it is that science is all about the scientific method. It's about having a hypothesis and then testing that hypothesis and seeing if it's indeed true. And if it's not true, you have the humility to say, uh, we were mistaken and we're going to move on from our previous hypothesis. So the essential theorem behind it is that there is no certainty that you can have forever. That if someone comes up with a hypothesis and a test and a proof that disagrees with a scientific theorem, that that theorem is willingly willingly thrown away. Um, so I did also want to read a quick poem that I think gets to the heart of this, but is more in a political vein than uh, music or science or religion. Um, so it's written by a gentleman named Langston Hughes, and I don't know when it was written, so if you guys no, feel free to yell it out. But um, Langston Hughes was a uh, African American, born in 1902, uh, and he's talking about the. In this poem, he's talking about what America means to an African American. It has a, a couple of antiquated terms in here, so bear with me on that. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great, strong land of love, where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. 
It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is the air we breathe. There never, there's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery's scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, or grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the poor, humble, hungry, mean. Hungry, yet today, despite the dream. Beaten, yet today, O oh pioneers. I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker, bartered through the years. Yet I am the one who dreamt our basic dream. In the old world, while still a serf of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet its mighty daring sings. In every brick and stone, in every furled turn, that makes America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland shore and Poland's plain, and England's grassy lay, and tore from black America's strand, sorry, and torn from black Africa's strand, I come to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions of relief today, on relief today? The millions shot down when we strike? The millions who have nothing for our pay? For all the dream we've dreamed, sorry, for all the dreams we've dreamed, all the songs we've sung, all the hopes we've held, all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing to for our day, for our pay, except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, must bring back our mighty dream again. And it goes on for a couple more lines, but that last one is the one that's sticks out to the, me the most because it's saying uh, 
America needs to be America again, but it's a land that has yet to be America. And I guess perhaps you could read it in the context of this sermon. Uh, You could change the words a little bit and say, oh, let Christ be Christ again, the kingdom that never has been yet and yet must be the kingdom where every man is free. And uh, so, yeah, I guess I've been toying with this concept that perhaps this concept of Christ can be redeemed by thinking that instead of God becoming man and then dying and then going back to heaven, that instead the point of the crucifixion, the point of the incarnation, is that this eternal God, whether it be metaphor or something that we we really do sincerely believe in, that this uh, transcendent, primordial, uh, sovereign, powerful, mysterious God from that's in heaven decided in all of their or its wisdom that it's not it's not the right way any longer. Like the Old Testament says, it's not the right way to elevate the elect, the chosen people, and say, these are mine and everyone else, screw you. Or maybe it's also not the way to have vengeance on one on uh, God's chosen enemies and to say, I'm going to come and smite you or I'm going to hurt you. But perhaps God in his wisdom said, these strategies didn't work. And instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to become imminent in the very world itself. I'm going to become part of history itself. And one could also make the argument that perhaps this wasn't an exclusive thing to just Jesus himself, but that God was so big that there's a continual process by which God is becoming more and more imminent. And and it's said that Jesus was a if if you look at the academic the academics and the scholars and their way of understanding what Jesus's message was, it's said by them that he was an apocalyptic uh, prophet, that he was talking about the end is here, the end has come. And perhaps the idea is that uh, he was talking about the fact that God was in their midst and that perhaps we ourselves could use a little bit of that apocalypse to think that God is in our midst, that God is becoming incarnate in ourselves, in our own lives. Uh, the Bible is fairly explicit by saying that we, the church, are now God, our Christ's body, his own body, and that maybe we can, by faith, say that God's too big to be held within people that label themselves as Christian, and that everybody, every single human, has God within it. And in that context, we got to be a lot more humble and we have to be a lot more willing to listen to others' perspectives. That if we draw a circle around our community, that we need to constantly be looking outside of that circle to understand where God is moving and what God is thinking. Because we get trapped up 
in false ego. And as this letter to the Philippians says, we need to be working with one heart and one purpose with everyone. We have to have hearts that are tender and sympathetic. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is perhaps a way to take two separate concepts. The idea that uh, emptiness and nothingness exists, but also the concept that nihilism and apathy is not the way forward. It, if, if we can bridge the concepts in the way that the Death of God movement does, I think that we can see that there is there is meaning to the world, but finding that meaning and finding the right way is difficult. And in, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, we likely won't be judged by some outer realm uh, or entity after we're dead, but we're going to be judged by the people around us, that we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that judgment and, and stick firm to things that we think are, are proper and good and try to help bring around people that, that think we're on the wrong path. And the key to all of that is uh, humility and a willingness to engage in dialogue. And I want to extend a serious, uh, sincere thanks to everyone in this revolution community because uh, I definitely have ideas that are outside, I think, of the, the generally accepted Christian position, and I've been able to engage in that dialogue here, and I've been asked to talk on stage here even. Uh, so it, those that are listening to the podcast right now or people in the audience, if you think that this is uh, the normal message, I, I guess it's slightly deviated, uh, or maybe a lot deviated, but I... I in, I'm very thankful for the ability to be a part of a community that isn't drawing these firm boundaries as to in-class and out-class. And, and maybe because of the fact that I've been accepted here and I feel like I, in general, can say that I am accepted into the Christian tradition again, that I now am very much willing to extend those boundaries again as well. And I think we should continuously be listening to people that are outside of the Christian narrative or the Christian community to, to get some new ideas and, and uh, to legitimately love them and try to help them out and let them help us. And uh, speaking of the fact that we're in a church called Revolution, I did want to end with the fact that uh, there's a book called On Revolution written by Hannah Arend. And <laughs> I know that Vicky's a, a big fan. Um, but one thing that struck me is that she points out that during the Enlightenment, uh, so I guess 300 to 400 years ago, uh, scientists were understanding, uh, I think for the first time, how bodies in space work. And they noticed that they revolve that one body can revolve around another body. And that's kind of the general principle of space. And uh, I don't think Hannah talks about this specifically, but it is worth pointing out uh, related to the emptiness I was talking about earlier is that space itself seems to be completely full of a lot of emptiness. And a lot of science fiction 
portrays that as a scary thing, but, um, you know, emptiness does, nothingness doesn't have to be scary, as I'm trying to articulate here. But, uh, but yeah, related to revolution, the political thinkers, the philosophers during the time of the revolution, uh, had in their head this scientific notion of bodies revolving around other bodies in space. And I think that we, well, and, and they were specifically looking at the Roman Republic and they were thinking to themselves, dang, these guys didn't have a king. I mean, yes, it ended poorly, but they had a republic and perhaps we can revolve back around and create a, a republic again, but that we, as we revolve around, can do it better this time, that we can keep the good. Because even in space and in, in heavenly bodies, uh, it's not the same revolu- revolution. The space is constantly being pushed in all directions, and other bodies, uh, even extremely far away, their gravity pull is pulling and, and changing things. So there, there is no exact replication, but I think that uh, perhaps Revolution Church itself can see itself as part of an, an actual physical revolution where we're going back. We're, we're not going to be making the same revolution again, but we're also not just a comet that's going... Um, I'm bad with metaphors in space, but we're not just going straight and not being affected at all by gravity. That there is a, an immense gravity of the Bible. There's an immense gravity of the Christian tradition and of the church, and that we can respect that gravity and continue on a revolution, but but do it a little bit differently. And, uh, and that's what I got for you today. Um, I want to finish by saying that Revolution is a uh, non-profit, um, but Jay didn't ask me to take any money, and so if you want to give some money to Caleb, uh, feel free, but really uh, don't don't worry about it if it's your first time and or your second or third or fourth. Uh, really, what we're trying to do here is... Um, just create a community of people where we can exchange ideas and it, it's not contingent upon uh, you bringing money. We really want you here and care about you as people.